Amen. Thank you, Clay. It's beautiful. Well, good morning. We're going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 16. You can start making your way there um, as I give a, a few remarks about uh, this passage. Last week, uh, Rusty covered the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection. Why did he do that? And it was clear. Uh, it's for us. It is our, he's our substitute. For the satisfaction of sin takes away our guilt and our shame and gives us right standing with God and also that we have been resurrected with him. Today I want to make that, take that a step further and highlight Jesus' teaching about discipleship. The, the sort of so what, okay, we have that. So what does that mean? What is our first step forward as disciples? How do we think about that? Just a bit of context um, for you as we look at Matthew. Jesus, uh, in Matthew 16, is headed back toward Jerusalem from Caesarea Philippi, which is in the north of Israel, some 25 miles above the Sea of Galilee. And if you remember, if you've ever read through this recently or studied it, uh, it's there that you see the confession by Peter, a uh, famous confession, verses 13 through 20 of this chapter. He confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, which Israel was looking forward to. And Jesus says, on this rock, that is on this confession, I will build my church. We're going to pick up our reading there, but I want to ask a few questions before before we begin reading. What is the foundational characteristic of the followers of Jesus Christ? What is the very foundation? And then what marks us out as radically different than the people of the world? What marks us out as disciples of Christ? What is one of those markers among many? We'll pick up our reading there with those questions in mind. Verse 21 of chapter 16 in Matthew. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we need you. We look to you for our salvation. We also look to you for how to live life. We need your teaching now. Holy Spirit, O oh great teacher, come. Spotlight Christ for us that we may see his beauty and glory. That we may emulate him, walk after him, follow him with all our heart, soul, and mind. O oh Lord, stir us up. 
as we need stirring up. We need redirection. We need renewal. Do that, we pray. For your glory, O great Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, great God, three in one. And Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God, my rock and my redeemer. And we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people say, Amen. Last year, Linda Rodriguez McRobbie wrote an article in the Boston Globe entitled, Don't Get Too Comfortable, America's Relentless Pursuit of Convenience and Relaxation. In it, she argues that the American quest for comfort at all costs, in the end, leads to disintegration of society, the breakdown of the family, and the breakdown of the unity of our nation. You see, the quest... For comfort, in the end, leads to collective discomfort. When one is not willing to walk past their comfort zone, it leads down a path where there is major discomfort in a collective society. She says this, quote, It seems almost trivial to suggest that something so innocent, that being comfort, so natural, so understandable, could be a part of a dark current. But there may be a correlation between cultural comfort-seeking, our feeling that we are entitled to comfort, and the difficulty we have in confronting the nation's major problems. For one thing, comfort itself has become normalized. Once something becomes normal, Elizabeth Stove noted, it becomes standardized. That, she says, is a position that works against variation and diversity. Basically, if it's different, it makes people uncomfortable, and that's bad. In other words, if it's different than your normal pattern of life or or maybe the people you've been around, then it's uncomfortable, then it's bad. And that's the position we're getting into in our society. And sadly, it happens in the church far too often because we have forgotten the basic teachings of Jesus Christ. In fact, this week in a conversation with a friend, he admitted a struggle with letting comfort and convenience being the primary grid by which every decision was made. In other words, his first thought was, what makes me comfortable in this decision? And then he moved in that direction. And he says this to me. He said, I realize this week it all boils down to my comfort level. And God has challenged me to trust him and to follow him even when it's uncomfortable. He's challenged me to trust Him and to follow Him even when it's uncomfortable. We're all comfort addicts. We like comfort at all costs. In short, we want glory with no suffering. We want the easy route and we're willing to do almost anything to gain our little comfortable kingdom. With little risk and no demands on our time, our money, or our energy. It was Calvin that said this, The evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. Let's say that again. The evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. That is to say, comfort, it can't, it's actually a good thing to some degree, but when you want it too much, when it becomes the ultimate grid, when it is your ultimate goal in life, you'll miss life. And this is what Jesus is saying in our passage. Jesus informs his disciples that the gospel outlook on life is flipped. It's radical. It's upside down to what our hearts want it to be. And that's because sin and misery has entered into this life. 
And there must be an answer for it. Here's a main point. Jesus' mission was to die for the pursuit of comfort and self-glory. It was to die to his pursuit of comfort and self-glory. And likewise, we are called ourselves to die to our pursuit of ultimate comfort and self-glory. We want to examine that in two ways. What was Jesus' mission and what is our mission? What was Jesus' mission and what is our mission? It's right here in the text. Uh, it's, It's plain and simple. We'll just walk through it. What was Jesus' mission? Earlier in the chapter, Peter's confession, he he said, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah. So that was made clear and plain to to the disciples. And then he moves on a step further. Jesus instituted his church, and what did he say? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, keep in mind, the gates, gates of a city or any place, is a defensive mechanism, meaning... These gates will not prevail against the church, meaning the church is on offense. Well, Jesus is saying the church is on offense, and the gates of hell will not prevail against the strategy of the church moving forward in the power of the gospel. Jesus then turns the corner and begins to highlight the heart of his mission. Notice in verse 21 that first refrain, from that time. This is a time stamp. And so Matthew, the gospel writer, says from that time he began to show his disciples what his mission is. And what is that? He must go on to suffer. Jesus' mission was to suffer many things, to be killed, to be raised on the third day. And you can think about the disciples hearing this for the first time, or at least at very best hearing it on the heels of you are the Messiah, and thinking, what? Wait a minute, Jesus. Wait, whoa, 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 time out. Roll, roll that back. You're the Messiah, the long-awaited one, and now you're telling us you're going to suffer and die? Discombobulating. If we were to put ourselves in their shoes, it would be very difficult to hear. In other words, they're thinking, Jesus, you're the Messiah King. You need to get on the glory road. You need to take over and rule Rome. Push them back and take back the land of Israel for us. Establish your kingdom now. That's what we want. That's what we need, Jesus. Yet they didn't know their true need. So, Peter reacts strongly. The text here says that he took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Wow. Typically, disciples of rabbis did not challenge their teachers, much less rebuke them in that day of time. Look at Peter's words in verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So this far be it from you is, is you could say, Lord, have mercy, or may the Lord never let this happen. Or this, this shouldn't happen by God's blessing. In other words, Peter's saying, Lord, stop being so pessimistic. You're not here to die. You're here to win. Come on, Jesus, a little more positive thinking. A little more self-esteem. And I'll take a a road aside here to, to say, this is what's so destructive about the road to glory preaching in this day and age where it says you are here to better yourself. You're here to, to have a new life, a better life now. No, that's not the message of Jesus, nor the witnesses, the disciples, the apostles. It's not to build your life better now. 
It's looking forward to a life that's to come and living in the in-between. So Jesus' response, verse 23, He turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on things of man. This is Jesus' strongest rebuke in all the Gospels. His strongest rebuke comes to his leader disciple, Peter. He doesn't coddle Peter. He doesn't gently tell him his wrong. He calls him Satan, which in the Hebrew means enemy or accuser. So we get the word Satan in Hebrew, Satan. Why does Jesus do this? Was Peter now Satan? No. He's not Satan. He didn't change into Satan. No, Peter is channeling a similar vein of argumentation that was heard before. In Jesus' earlier ministry, do you remember it? Think back to Matthew chapter 4. What happened? Jesus went out. He was tempted. He was in the wilderness. And Satan tempted him three times. And the basic crux of the temptation is this. Okay, Jesus, you're the Son of God. Just take over now. Just don't go through the suffering. Take the kingdom now. You don't need suffering. You need glory. Take it. And what does Jesus say? Matthew 4.10 Be gone, Satan. Jesus knew that he had to suffer as the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. There is no other way. There is no route around the suffering. It was right before him. And as we've seen before, he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He would not turn away. He did not shrink back. But further than that, think back to the Garden of Eden. What was the content of Satan's temptation of Eve? You'll not die, for surely you'll be like God. No, not suffering, but glory. In both cases, the enemy is twisting God's word, manipulating it, trying to move God's people in a direction that is not a part of God's kingdom. Jesus says to Peter, you are a stumbling block. Greek here is skandalon. Uh, He says, get behind me. Follow me. Follow me on the road to suffering. Don't get in front of me and rebuke me. Get behind me. Follow me. In a very short passage of time, Peter goes from being the rock of confession, you are the Christ, to the rock of stumbling. Surely, Lord, you won't suffer. We have to put ourselves in Peter's shoes. I'm so thankful for Peter, aren't you? I'm so thankful for him because as we all, we can look in our lives and say, yeah, I've had great times. I've said, you're the Christ. Yes, I'm doing good over here. And then, boom, rock bottom. And yet, Jesus doesn't say, get away. What he's saying metaphorically is, what you're saying, Peter, is is not a part of my plan. But he still brings Peter with him. Even though Peter's off track, he still keeps Peter. He holds him fast. We must see that. I'm going to say this today. Jesus' mission was suffering. Look at verse 23. At the end, you're setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. God's plan from the beginning was that Jesus would suffer. Ephesians chapter 1 explicitly lays that out. Christianity without a cross 
is Christianity without Christ, which is not Christianity at all. Say that again. Christianity without a cross is Christianity without Christ, which is not Christianity at all. The cross of Christ is the centerpiece. The death of Christ is the centerpiece of Christianity. It is the great work. It is finished on the cross. What we're just saying. Nothing happens without the cross. And here Jesus says, okay, this is my mission. Now what is yours? So let's look at that. Jesus' mission was to suffer and die. How do we set our minds on the things of God? This moves to our second point, our mission. What is our mission? Verse 24. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, follow my pattern of suffering. What does it mean to die? It means this. To give up our own kingdom values and take on his kingdom values. To die to our personal agendas and live for his agenda alone. To die, for, die to our will and to live for his. What Jesus is saying is that we need to be prepared to die to ourselves both in passive suffering and in active suffering. A lot of commentators highlight those. We have passive and active, and some commentators would fall on one side or the other or maybe pit them against each other, but I believe they both are together in this Christian life we live. What is passive suffering? Passive suffering is the trials we enter into. They come into our lives unannounced. They challenge us, whether it be sickness or disease or death or conflict in our family. We may not generate them, but they come at us, and we're passively suffering, trying to walk the Christ life, trying to live the Christ life in the midst of that suffering. And then you have active suffering. This is when we're faced with myriads of choices in life. And at root is the question, will I preserve myself or am I willing to die for the kingdom? Am I willing to die to my status, to my reputation, to my in-group, my in-crowd? Just a few questions just to think about for application When all other families are excelling greatly at sports, do you join in the chase at the expense of the Lord's Day? Or do you say, I will keep my family on this path. I will have them worship with me. I will set this aside as family day worship. Or do you go the way of the world and just cave in constantly over and over again? When you're running late to work and you see someone who doesn't have a car and they're walking in the rain, do you drive by, do you die to self and stop and pick them up? When you're out in the yard on Saturday trying to get a bunch done and you see your neighbor, do you walk over and get to know them better, maybe share truth with them, encourage them, or just focus on your to-do list because you got to get it done? When your group of friends engage in a series of racist jokes, do you join in the laughter or do you die to yourself and speak boldly about all people being created in the image of God? When your friend group begins to gossip and slander a person, do you sit silently or do you die to yourself and challenge the talk? 
When someone confronts you about sin in your life, do you lambast the person or do you listen, repent, and die to yourself? Kids, when you're in school and the in crowd is making fun of someone, for whatever reason, do you remain silent? Or do you die to self and speak up for that person or even move over to their table and befriend them? When you think you know best over your parents' judgment, do you follow yourself or do you die to yourself and obey their word? And we could keep going. There's more and more and more. There are choices in this life, even bigger than these, at which comfort and convenience is not the grid. The grid is, how is God calling me? What is the call of God on my life? It may be a comfortable track for some sort of time. But most likely, it's going to be a calling of death to self, but life to God. Recently, I've been reading through the biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is by Eric Metaxas. It's a great book, and I really encourage you to read it. Bonhoeffer uh, uh, was a young Lutheran pastor in Germany during the height of the Nazi power and uh, the rule of Adolf Hitler. Instead of following the charisma of Hitler and, and, the, and the change of society toward hatred of the Jews and, and even expelling the Jews down to killing the Jews, he stood up in the early days and fought against this evil regime. He was jailed by the Gestapo on April 5, 1943. Stayed in jail two years. Two years later, just days before the Allies liberated his concentration camp at Flossenburg, Bonhoeffer was executed for his faith in Christ and strong stand against the evil of his day. This is a man who who was born into high society in Germany. He was trained highly as a Lutheran pastor, very gifted. And he was faced with the moral dilemma, do I go with the flow or do I die to myself? And live for the ethics of the kingdom of God. And here's what he says. He has a great book, The Cost of Discipleship. I'll just read a a portion of that. As we embark on discipleship, Bonhoeffer says, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to which otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. What he's saying is that the cross is not somewhere down the end of your life. The cross starts when you come to Christ because you are in union with him. You die with him spiritually and yet also experientially in life. We live for him. This is why in verse 25 and 26, we see the themes of losing and finding, gaining and forfeiting. Jesus is saying, hey, if you you seek to build your life, you're going to lose it. But if you seek to lose your life, in other words, live for my kingdom alone, for my purposes, you will find it. Comfort and self-glory is addicting. It's enslaving and even crushing. In fact, the Hebrew word for glory is kavod, which also means heavy. We seek our own glory, our own comfort in this life. We will be crushed. We can't handle glory. We're called to die. It belongs to God alone. 
We're called to die to self. And and what that means is live in humility before Him. We're called to suffering, to shame, even to rejection. And friends, I want to say this. The way our society is moving is is not uh, dissimilar to what the early church lived in and among. Being radically different than the society around them. We have a message that is radically different. We have a message that moves us into dying to ourselves and living for Christ. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. 2 Timothy 2, 3 says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. And then 2 Timothy 3, 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Here's the truth. If comfort and self-glory is your goal, then you will not be missional for the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. If comfort and and vain glory and convenience is your goal in life, you will never be missional for God's kingdom because you're living for your own. To be missional, we die. We die and listen for His call even at the risk of our own lives. This is what the early church was taken with. They were taken with the beauty and glory of Christ, so much so that Stephen could stand there and gaze into the heavens and see the glory of Christ and be stoned to death. And yet say, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's the same glory that took Paul to be beheaded. It's the same glory that took Peter to be crucified upside down. The glory of Christ moved them in such a way that they were eager, willing, and ready to die. Not to just convenience, but to give their lives for such a beautiful king and his great kingdom. Remember this, our hope is in Jesus' death and resurrection on our behalf. He died so that we may live. As we confess together, as we read together, we now live for others. We die and live for Him and for others. We can repent of our pursuit of self-glory and rest in the fact that the work of Christ covers even our own rebellion. Folks, this has been an a eye-opening study this week for me to, to revisit and look at this and, and, and cry out to God and say, Lord, where am I failing in this? Help me. And this is what I urge you to do. Throw yourself on the mercy of God and say, Lord, help me to live this out, to take this step of dying to self daily and following you. Just an encouragement in our time here. When you're tempted to beat yourself up over your lack of faith or your failures or your sin or your pursuit of comfort, your your pursuit uh, of, of convenience or vain glory, just look to Peter. Look to Peter. Look at Peter, how how he was pursuing that, how he was mistaken, how he had many failures, and yet Christ says, keep following me. It's okay. I got you. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to challenge your your socks off. But you're here. I got you. And that's the grace and the glory of Jesus Christ. Listen, you're going to fail. You're going to fail at this. But that doesn't mean you don't... Keep running the race that is set before you, as Paul Paul the Apostle says. So cling to grace, and yet let that grace energize your movement forward 
and living the Christ life, which is death to self and a, a, a life unto God for his kingdom purposes alone. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we're not good at this. We don't want this. But, Lord, we need this, and you call us to this. And that is dying so that we may live. Lord, I'm reminded that you, it was you who said, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. Oh, Lord, make us bountiful fruit bearers through our death with you, through being raised with you. And as we follow you in this life, we need you, Lord. Holy Spirit, we cry out. I pray for this church. I'm so encouraged with the many ways I've seen, even over this first year here, that that I've seen people dying to themselves and serving one another and reaching out. I pray that we would move forward in that, in the power of Christ, in the power of the Spirit. Lord, continue to move this church forward in great kingdom purposes. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.